friends, for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a series that matches up with the small group studies that many of you have signed up to be in. And hopefully what will happen is that through the sermon, you'll have some kind of catalyst to get you going in your conversations. Hopefully, you'll hear something that will make you think and and kind of re-examine how you look at the scripture a little bit. Today is a good example of that. We're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 37. It's interesting when you talk to people about Ezekiel because most everybody only knows one passage in Ezekiel, and that's the passage that we're going to do today, the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's Ezekiel 37, and if you would turn to it, I will pray for us, and we will study the word together. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. Over the years in ministry, I've discovered that when it comes to pastoral care, there are really good times to visit people and there are some not so good times to visit people. For example, if I'm going to go visit somebody who's going to have surgery, I will go in right before they have surgery, not right as they're coming out the door. I did that to one of our members one time. I was the first person that she saw coming out of post-op, and she was concerned that she had died and gone to heaven. And as a result of that, um, you always see me now before surgery. I've also discovered that there is a best time, there is an optimal time to visit new parents and new babies in the hospital. And that optimal time is the first full day after baby is born. And I want to assure you that this is the very, very best day. And if you miss that small little window, your best days are behind you. This is because the first day is not labor and delivery day. I've never actually met a woman who, after 12 hours of labor, thought, gosh, I'd really love to see my pastor right now. So after labor and delivery, mom finally gets a shower, dad gets a nap, everybody gets something to eat, and baby is still perfect. Absolutely perfect. And every parent, every parent believes that their child, their baby is uniquely and absolutely perfect. And they are absolutely right about that, but for all the wrong reasons. You walk into a maternity ward and you are sure to overhear some of the following things. He's a perfect sleeper. I got 13 hours of sleep last night. All those parents who complain about those sleepless nights, they don't have a perfect child like mine. And and the news flash for that set of parents is that it's not that the child is perfect. The conditions are perfect. Most women do not get to take a full maternity ward complete with overnight nurses home with them into their living room. Another thing that that you'll get to hear is, just look at her. Just look at her. She smiled at me. You know, they're not supposed to smile until they're four months old. And here she is, only four hours old. She is brilliant brilliant. She's going to be a neurosurgeon and a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a modern-day Mother Teresa. Now, I'm not a doctor. I have no medical experience, but I will go out on a limb and say that this precocious smiler is shortly about to need a diaper change. Nonetheless, nonetheless, that seems like an awful lot of pressure 
to put on somebody who just arrived here on earth. At least give them a week or two before you unload all the pressures and expectations of the world upon their tiny little shoulders. Because when those pressures come, that perfectness that your child was born with, that perfectness that, by the way, you were born with, quickly becomes eroded when the world tells you who you should be. And from there, we spend the rest of our lives seeking out the person that we want to be while trying to deflect all of the counterfeit options that try to define us. It is really hard to see the possibilities, even for the possibilities for ourselves, when you're stuck in the reality of a situation. Ezekiel tells that story in chapter 37, and it seems pretty clear-cut. The hand of the Lord came upon me, says Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know. Doesn't that seem like one of the stupidest conversations in the entirety of the Bible? Because here they are, they're standing out in the middle of this hot, dry, dusty valley. And it is filled with bones. This is the very stereotype of Death Valley. There's tumbleweed going by and maybe a lizard and a cactus somewhere. But even the vultures have already left the area because these bones are so picked clean. They're so old. They're so far removed from anything that might even resemble life that if somebody so much as touches them, they're going to crumble to dust. How, how could God even ask, can these bones live? No, they can't live. They're the antithesis of life. That seems like a pretty solid judgment call to me. Based on what we can see, what we can picture, it would appear that these bones are useless, that they're just dust in the making. That's what we can see from our human perspective. But Ezekiel is wondering here if, if perhaps God has a different perspective on this. And so he says, Oh Lord God, you know, you know, there's more to this than just a, a trite little passage passing phrase going on here. There's an acknowledgement from Ezekiel that God sees so much more to us than what we can see for ourselves. What we see is dried bones, ready to crumble to dust. God sees as something with which he can make life. That ultimately makes a great deal of sense because God created us. He formed us in our mother's wombs. He has plans for us. And even in this place that seems so desolate and so hopeless and so very much without a future, there is still something there. There's still something for God to work with, which considering that he created the world from nothing is a great place for God to start. What we see as the final pronouncement, God sees as potential. We don't know all that God has created us to be, which is why Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. I may not know, I may not be able to figure it out, but Lord, you know, you know what is possible, what the potential is. So God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, and you say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and I will cover you with skin and put breath into you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall live. In the Spirit of God, you will be brought into the fullness of life. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. This is not going to be some kind of like, crazy glue duct tape operation to renovate your life. This is a big undertaking. We're talking about skin and bones and flesh and muscles and breath. This is a big deal. And when you're living, when you're living, which, which God says twice is going to happen, when you're living, you're living for the purpose of knowing the Lord. God will take you from nothingness either or both the nothingness that you have put upon yourself or that the world has forced on you. And God says, I will redeem you, not just a little bit, not just a little bit, but completely transform you into something that is living and breathing and valuable. This is amazing news in the valley of death. This is the news for all of us that says that we are never going to be beyond the love and redemption of God. No matter how far away, how far gone we think we are, how close we are to crumbling to dust, God still sees that perfect you that he created. And he already knows that you still have everything inside of you to be fully alive in the spirit of the Lord. But then wait, because there's more. It's not just you. Verse 11 says, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, I will put you back in the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I bring you up from the grave. O my people, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you on your soil and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Ezekiel's smart about this. God is smart about this. Most of us, most of us don't spend a lot of time hanging out in valleys of dried bones. We don't have a real visual for that. We can kind of picture it. You know, we kind of got the Western thing going on in our minds. But, We know what a grave looks like. We absolutely know what a grave looks like. Especially at Halloween time, we have great visuals of what graves look like. And so we can get that. We can understand that. We know the finality of the grave. And God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to bring you up out of it. This is not the end. I will bring you up out of this and you will live. God's plan is to do this for all of his people. Everybody, including you and including the last person on earth that you think deserves it, which is awesome and generous in which we have the potential to totally and completely mess up. Much like a newborn parent, there is a competitive streak to each one of us. It is in our DNA, and it causes us to start looking around at everybody else. Check out what everybody else is doing, and then we go and we compare ourselves to them. We can't stop ourselves. And comparison kills spiritual growth, and it creates this false sense of identity. Because as soon as we compare ourselves to other people, we start to blur the image of God, 
that God created us to be as unique individuals. Do you know that, that across the three worshiping services of this church, there are people in this community who can pray for hours on end. I'm talking two, three, four, five hours a day, nothing but prayer. If you compare yourself to them, all of a sudden, you're going to start feeling a whole lot less holy. There are people in this community who can recite chapter and verse scripture all day long. And if you compare yourself to them, you're going to start thinking that maybe you're not such a person of the word. There are people in this community who are outgoing and gregarious and they have the gift of hospitality and you start comparing yourself to them and all of a sudden you start wondering, am I really valuable to the kingdom? But here's the thing. God didn't create you to be them. And the more that you try to be them, the less you're going to be of you. And the kingdom needs you. Just imagine if we were a congregation, whole congregation, every single one of us was outgoing, energetic, always out in the community, in your face, all the time, high, high, high energy. Do you know we still wouldn't reach everybody? Because it turns out that there are people out in the world, real people that exist, who tend to be quiet. They tend to be calm. They don't want somebody in their face. It makes them nervous to go to somebody's house. But if we all treat them the same way, as opposed to looking at individuals, we're never, ever going to reach people for the gospel. Henry Nouwen, famous Dutch priest, wrote, Spiritual greatness has nothing to do with being greater than others. It has everything to do with being as great as each of us can be. We need each other to be great. Because when we're all great together, the kingdom does better. We don't need to be greater than each other. We need to be great in our own way. There's another burden that gets lifted when we give up this idea of comparing ourselves to others. We don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to convince you that I spend 23 and a half hours a day in prayer. I don't have to pretend to do that. Because pretending never works out well. There was a freshly minted lieutenant. And he wanted to impress the first private to enter into his new office. And and he pretended to be on the phone with a general. So that the private would know that he was somebody. Yes, sir, general, you can count on me. And he slams down the phone. And he looks at this private and he says, what do you want? And the private says, I'm just here to connect your phone, sir. (laughs) See, if you're ever going to be who we want to be, who God wants us to be, we have to start being honest about who we really are. When God was out in the valley, he's talking with Ezekiel about the bones. God says, I will put my spirit within you. But when we're so full and so busy pretending to be somebody that we're not, there's no room for the Spirit to get in there and bring us to real life. So let's say that we could. Let's say that we could do this. We could get past all the pressures of other people dictating who we should be and and past the pretending. and, And we get past the comparison. At that point, the way should be clear for us to get to who God has created us to be for his purposes. But I think we should know what those purposes are. 
A recent study by the Barna Group, Barna, by the way, does a lot of research on, on religious trends, found that the number one challenge to helping people grow spiritually is that most people equate spiritual maturity with trying hard to follow the rules in the Bible. So no wonder people are totally unmotivated towards this. Is that really God's purpose? To create a whole group of of rule followers? I can't wait to open up my eyes in the morning and jump out of bed and follow the rules, said no one, ever, ever. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There is an enormous difference between following the rules and following Jesus. Our purpose is to follow Jesus. One is a condition of the head, one is a condition of the heart, and it is the heart, the heart that symbolizes life that God is most interested in for his purposes. Our spiritual formation is not about being the first one to know all the rules. It's an ongoing process that shapes our inner life and our character, and that process is going to look different for each one of us, and that's the whole point here. You weren't created to fit somebody else's mold. You were created to be you, and almost from the moment that you were born, the world has tried to convince you otherwise. In stark contrast to God, God who has quietly, patiently, consistently been working on your heart to get you back to the you that you want to be, the you that God intended you to be, his follower, his child. He wants you to grow into you. Years ago, I got a phone call from a woman who had been asked to serve as an elder at the church that I was serving at the time. And she said that she wanted to come and meet with me before she accepted the nomination so that I could understand a little bit more of her history. So she came into my office and she sat down and she had the tears running down her cheeks and she's sobbing and she said, you can't possibly, you can't possibly want me to be an elder. I'm a recovering alcoholic. There is no way that I can serve the church. On the day of that conversation, she'd been stone cold sober for 26 years. She had given up alcohol, but she had not given up all of the judgment and the pain and the hurt that came with it. And for her, even though she was no longer in that life, she let that life define her. And slowly, after all of these years, it was killing her because she could not grow in the Lord. She couldn't move forward. And she couldn't thrive as the person that God had created her to be. She finally accepted the call to serve, and she turned out to be one of the very best elders that I've ever worked with. Her life, in all of its uniqueness, allowed her to minister to people in a way that would not have been possible for me. Her unique life experience, with its unique challenges and joys and difficulties, put her in a position to minister to people who needed to hear that there was life beyond that particular sin. When she started to thrive as a follower of Jesus, she blessed the community in ways that she couldn't see when she was standing in the valley of death. And even when she let go of the sin, she couldn't let go of the shame, and she needed to take that next step to be free. 26 years, and she hadn't been able to grow because she couldn't take that next step. Jesus once said that with God, all things are possible. And the great thing about life with God is that your next step is always possible. The bones are never so dry, 
so dry that you cannot be brought back to life. That step towards God is always waiting no matter what you have done or how much you think that you have messed up. Jesus was hanging on the cross next to a thief. And Jesus turned to him and he said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. There is always, always a next step. When you were born and the doctors and the nurses and the parents and grandparents looked at you and pronounced that you were perfect, they were almost right. You are perfectly you, created by God for God. And if this morning you're thinking that maybe the you that you were always meant to be has gotten a little bit off track, remember this. There is always, always a next step. Faith begins when you decide to take it. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.